0: and welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent
1: Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. Cam, what film are we looking at this week? We are going to take on the 1995 James Bond film, Goldeneye a movie that I think plays a very large role in a certain generation of uh, Bond fans, mostly due to a Nintendo 64 game, but the movie, pretty notable as well. And one thing you'll notice from now on in,
0: we're gonna be reading a synopsis for the film, and we're gonna be using the same site every time as long as we can, which is letterboxed.com. GoldenEye, 1995, directed by Martin Campbell. No limits, no fears, no substitutes. When a powerful satellite system falls into the hands of Alec Trevelyan, a.k.a. Agent 006, a former ally-turned-enemy, only James Bond can save the world from an awesome space weapon that, in one short pulse, could destroy the Earth. As Bond squares off against his former compatriot, he also battles Trevelyan's stunning ally, Xenia Onatop, an assassin who uses pleasure as her ultimate weapon. (laughs)
1: <laughs> they really drop a spoiler in that synopsis, huh?
0: A little bit. It they, they kind of leads you on there, but uh, it certainly gets your, uh, your heart pumping for it, I would say.
1: Oh, I'm like bouncing off the walls right now. <laughs> <laughs> so my first question is, Cam, what's your initial thoughts about the film? This movie is really interesting for me because it's a uh, definite favorite, um, but almost more for nostalgia because this was the first James Bond film that I ever saw in theaters. I'd grown up watching lots of them on VHS, but for some reason, you know, I guess just because of my age, I'd never seen one in theaters. Um, the previous one, License to Kill, landed in theaters in 1989. I was eight years old, and that movie's pretty violent, so my parents weren't gonna take me to that. But mm-hmm. when Gold and I rolled around in 1995, I could go. I was 14, and so just the excitement of, A, ushering in a new Bond, and B, getting to see it in theaters was super exciting. So. For me, it's one that I've always enjoyed a lot, Um, but I think I struggled maybe a little bit later in that Goldeneye does things differently than, say, the Roger Moore era, which was the era I grew up on. And so for me, I would often, in my younger years, fall more towards some of Brosnan's follow-ups, which were closer to the Moore spirit. But, you know, I, I think I've really come back around on Goldeneye, and I'm looking forward to talking about it further.
0: See, for me, I'm a little bit behind you, not just in age, but also in in looks, of course. (laughs) um, I wasn't able to see GoldenEye in in the cinemas. I was eight at the time, and it was a 12 certificate in this country. So there's no way I was getting into that one. However, what I did have, and I probably shouldn't have had, was the N64 game, GoldenEye. And that told me all I needed to know about this film.
1: It really does. That game was just such a touchstone for a certain generation.
0: And I mean, in terms of N64 games I owned, that one, I'm pretty sure I used it to death. It may well have just... I wouldn't be surprised if it self-destructed in my N64 at one point, just from overuse.
1: There is no game I don't think I've played more in my life than GoldenEye. I mean, maybe you can make an argument for the original Super Mario Brothers on my NES when I, when I was a kid, but mm-hmm. man, GoldenEye, I just remember night after night, um, going to, you know, friends' houses in my early 20s, late teens, and just playing Gold every night until like two in the morning. And we all got really, really good at it.
0: <laughs> now, I mean, this is something I hinted on in the briefing episode last week, uh, It gave us an idea of how we got into the genre of spy movies. But I hadn't seen many James Bond films before this film. Obviously I didn't really see it in the cinemas. I did see it later on VHS. And I did see all the uh, the films after that at the cinema. Mm-hmm. But um having this game and it giving me the story certainly piqued my interest in the genre. So for me this is sort of the foundation that built on from then onwards in the rest of my life I'd say.
1: Right. And when you did finally see the movie what did you think of it?
0: Lame duck. <laughs> the the, the game is far superior where was the aztec section i was i was completely depressed
1: oh of course
0: (laughs) no i mean we'll get into my thoughts on the film a little later on but i mean cam one thing we like to do here and you'll find out going on listeners is we like to sort of give a little bit of background on the film some information about it how it came to be um The bit of information I'd like to hear from you, Cam, I'm sure you know all about it, is the gap between this and the last film and and what was going on with the franchise at the time.
1: Yeah. So what had happened was Timothy Dalton had made License to Kill, which was actually a real box office underperformer. It opened in the summer of 89, and it just had a lot of competition. It was up against some heavy hitters like Ghostbusters 2, which was a big hit, as well as um, (laughs) Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Yeah, buddy. Uh, You also had Back to the Future 2. There was a lot of big movies that summer, and it wasn't like now where you can release a big movie every single week and it'll do well. Mm. Back then, it was like people took their time. They went and re-saw movies, and um, ultimately, License to Kill got lost in the shuffle domestically, and it is adjusted for inflation, the lowest-grossing James Bond movie. Now, That said, they were still going to press on with Timothy Dalton. They were intent on giving him his third because Roger Moore didn't exactly explode out of the gate either. You know, it took two movies before we got to, you know, The Spy Who Loved Me, which was his big hit. So I think they were invested in Timothy Dalton. But ultimately what happened was Eon Entertainment, um, which is the company that produces James Bond, uh, it's the Broccoli family runs it. They got in some uh, legal issues with MGM, their distributor, And basically James Bond was put on ice for six years um, between 89 to 95. There was actually going to be a third Timothy Dalton movie in 1990. Um, They were going to start production on that. They were in pre-production before when the lawsuit stuff happened. And so Timothy Dalton was basically put on hold that movie. I believe there's script elements of it out there. It was going to be set in Hong Kong primarily. Um, But It kind of got shuffled off. And then when GoldenEye was going to be a thing, Timothy Dalton was approached to be in it. And Dalton was sort of interested, but he said, okay, let's take the best of the two I've done and make this the culmination of my run as James Bond. And uh, the Broccoli family basically said, "Um, it's been six years since your last one. We need you to do like three or four. We need to have a run here, not like a six year gap and then one movie. And so ultimately Dalton walks away, and that's when we get Brosnan. And Brosnan, of course, was one of the original picks to take on Bond for the Living Daylights, but then he couldn't do it because of Remington Steele, so Dalton jumped in. So it was a real back and forth between Dalton and Brosnan.
0: I would say the franchise at that point needed a little bit of a refresh. Not that I have anything against Timothy Dalton, but as you say, it underperformed the last one at the cinema. It probably needed a little bit of fresh blood, and I think it was probably a good move in that sense. How yeah. did the audiences react
1: to this film? Audiences really showed up in droves. Um, domestically, it made $106 million, And international, it made $246 million, for a worldwide total of $352 million. Now, $352 million nowadays isn't really considered that spectacular. Um, but in uh, 1995, that was a really big hit. And it had a budget of $55 million. So that is a major, major profit.
0: And I mean, it might be useful to describe how they work out profits, I would say. From what I understand, and you can certainly tell me if I'm wrong, generally they have the budget and then a, a marketing budget, which is around about the same. So maybe $100 million altogether. And mm-hmm. then they still made $250 million on top. So that I think that makes it a bona fide success.
1: Oh, yeah. Big hit. They always say the old Hollywood adage is you have to double your budget to make a, to earn a profit. And, you know, there's a lot of little hollywood math going on with that number i think but um ultimately that's what they always say but this movie goldeneye was the number fourth highest grossing movie of 1995 at the worldwide box office um what do you think the three that beat it were i'll give you a hint number one is a cop action movie uh the third in a franchise *Die of vengeance that is correct that was number one Number two was an animated film, the first from one of the major animation producers of our era. Toy Story. Boom! Number t- that is number two. Toy Story. And number Toy three, <laughs> and number three, um, is a uh, real world kind of docudrama starring Hollywood's most beloved movie star. I think you might have sunk my battleship on that one. That would be Apollo thirteen. Ah. Oh. So, How did I not get that? <laughs> so, Goldeneye was in really good company. And um, a couple other notables just on the list. Um, at number six, you had Batman Forever, which is notable because it was also an attempt to kind of kickstart a you know really beloved franchise again. And that one was also a big hit. Um, at number 25, you had a Sean Connery film. You had First Night, his uh, King Arthur movie with Richard Gare. Yes. Uh, and then at number 53, you had another Sean Connery movie, Just Cause, with Laurence Fishburne, which was sort of a mystery kind of thriller-type film. So, I remember
0: the former, but definitely not the latter of the two.
1: Yeah. So, 95, Connery was still kicking. Like, he was still cranking out movies to a year at that point. Um, also notable, down at number 76 was the movie Circle of Friends, which was sort of a romantic drama starring Chris O'Donnell and a actress named Minnie Driver, who would also have another appearance in a major movie this year.
0: She certainly would, and uh, I have a, a little story about Minnie Driver coming up, which I'm sure everyone will be uh, very keen to hear.
1: Good, good. And so, yeah, that was her big breakthrough with Circle of Friends. And then lastly, down at number 187, um a movie called Shallow Grave, which was Danny Boyle's first film. And Danny Boyle, a director that's kicked around the Bond franchise a couple times now, but it's never quite come to pass.
0: Wasn't he originally at one point tagged on to do the No Time to
1: Die, which is one we're still waiting for at the moment? He was. He was signed on to do that film and worked on it for quite a while. And ultimately, script issues caused him to depart the project.
0: Well, Well, we'll ultimately see how that pans out in November, I believe.
1: That's Well, fingers crossed, we'll see. Wow, yeah. Let's, let's not count our, uh, our chickens just yet. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as you referenced, this movie was directed by Martin Campbell. Martin Campbell, when he signed on to do Goldeneye, this was not like a heavy hitter walking into the franchise. He'd done some American movies. He'd done the Ray Liotta action movie, No Escape, which I watched at my birthday party, I guess, in 1995. And a couple other Ooh. kind of forgotten films and he was mostly known for tv he'd done the edge of darkness bbc miniseries um but not a big hollywood career at this point so interesting choice
0: and did the decision ultimately come to mgm or was it eon that had the choice of martin how did they how did they pick that
1: my guess is eon would have pushed for him and mgm would have agreed to it um that tends to be the way it is Uh, eon usually gets who they want and also, you know, we say it's kind of a newer director to the franchise and not a big proven name. Even the screenplay credits on this movie, you know, the story is to a guy named Michael France, who'd only had one major project, which was Cliffhanger, um, which I really like, but again, mm-hmm. like just Cliffhanger. And that's interesting to then toss him into the James Bond world. And the screenplay was by two guys, Jeffrey Kane and Bruce Firestein, who had never really done anything. Um, Jeffrey Kane had done some TV. And Bruce Firestein had really done not, not much of anything. And they would both ultimately go on to have a bit of a career. Uh, Jeffrey Kane would go on to write The Constant Gardener, the John Le Carre adaptation, starring Ray Fiennes, as well as Exodus, Gods and Kings, the Ridley Scott movie. And Bruce Firestein would go on to uh, work on Tomorrow Never Dies, um, The World is Not Enough, and uh, a couple of the Bond video games. So
0: this is all information to me. I didn't know. So it sounds like they kind of rolled the dice on this one.
1: It really does seem like that. Like, it didn't feel like a big confidence move. Like, okay, guys, we've been away for six years. We've got a new Bond. We are locking down Hollywood's best and brightest to really, you know, kickstart this relaunch. It was really like, well, uh, I don't know. Who have we got? (laughs)
0: Well, I mean, not to bury the lead on my thoughts on the film, but I think that, uh, that role of the die might have worked out in their favor a little bit.
1: Yeah, this movie really does feel blessed. I mean, this was the final movie to have input from Cubby Broccoli. Before he passed on, his daughter Barbara would continue on with the franchise. And his son-in-law, Michael G. Wilson, would, has been around forever and would continue on. But yeah, this is the last one where old Kobe uh, blessed the movie.
0: And certainly on the actor side of things as well. It's, I mean, obviously, Pierce Brosnan, Sean Bean, Alan Cummings, kind of known names. Obviously, Robbie Coltrane hanging around, Judy Dench as well. Mm-hmm. But Femke Janssen, uh, Isabella Skorupko... Both not particularly household names. I know Isabella was found, I I believe, somewhere in Eastern Europe as when they were scouting for actresses to be in the film. So even on the
1: acting side of things, they were rolling the dice. Mm -hmm. They really were, yeah. I mean, I guess the Bond films have a history of just, you know, signing models on, for example, in the old Connery days to play the female leads. But yeah, like this does feel like one that it was almost like they, they just had a lot of faith in the brand and that Pierce Brosnan would be enough to draw audiences in and they were right it did work and if anything Bond is known for gambling very true
0: mm. <laughs> I still don't know if I quite understand Baccarat but
1: Sweeby 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 <laughs> Oui. bon. I don't know <laughs> Yeah, I think I understand the basics. I've read the Casino Royale novel which gives like a four or five page breakdown of the game I have an idea as to how it's played, but I'm sure there's far more complications that are over my head I think it's closest to nine
0: basically isn't it? Yeah that's the idea. Yeah. yeah, I think that's all we have in terms of background and building up the story and the dossier for the film. Should we get into our thoughts? I think we should from my side of things, this is still up on my top list of Bond films. When I saw it as a kid, when I was able to get the VHS eventually, I did actually love the film. It, for me, kind of does what Bond does best, which is a mix of action, cheese, spy, intrigue, and romance. Um, and it's certainly one that I would always go back to. But then I've also got that warm sense of nostalgia because of the video game built into it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so going back and watching it these last few days has been quite interesting because for me it still kept my interest which is something i can't say about a lot of older films i go back and watch right especially if i've seen it before whereas this still from the, the beginning the uh the bungee scene on the dam i'm hooked and it's instant it's action 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 go 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 and that, that i mean bond films are known for having those sort of intense openers mostly anyway but it cool. does grab you
1: Oh, it definitely does. And yeah, I really enjoyed this rewatch. This one, I think maybe even climbed up a little bit higher on my list of James Bond films, you know, one or two spots or something like that on this rewatch and that it really just seems to go for it. And it feels like a movie, you know, you reference the bungee jump scene. We see our opening with Bond is just him, you know, racing across this, uh, you know, this dam and (laughs) the movie really is kind of setting its state and purpose right there. You are on a run with this character for basically two hours. And what I really like is it, you know, a lot of the Bond movies have this balance of action and a plot that can be incomprehensible. I mean, when we talk about, like, say, Octopussy and the Fabergé eggs or the diamonds in Diamonds Are Forever, we're going to be sitting there, like, going, like, wait, okay, how did this work? But with Goldeneye, what I love about it, the plotting, it's not dumbed down but it's speaking to like a bright teenager. So like if you're a teenager watching this movie, it may be a little bit confusing, but if you really focus and put your mind to it, you're going to crack the code of what is going on with the villain throughout this movie. And it gives it that extra satisfaction level that some of the other Bond movies, you know, the plot is just a complete throwaway. They're like, ah, whatever.
0: Well, I was just going to say, in terms of the ultimate bad guy, the, the Sean Bean reveal, a third or so into the film is an
1: actual surprise. It really was. When I saw it in theaters, I was blown away. Um, that, and I don't know why. <laughs> it should have been pretty obvious.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I think they were very smart to name the Janus Syndicate after a lesser-known Greek mythological figure. Because had I, you know, had they named it like I don't know Zeus or something, I may have been uh, debating what that name meant. But Janus didn't mean a lot to me when I was fourteen. It still doesn't mean much to me now, to be fair. to be Well, it's the two-faced Roman god. So I'm like, okay, well, there, there you have it. And had I known that going in, I would have been paying a lot more attention to that. You just taught me something. So there you go. <laughs> so let's dive into the movie. I think one thing that's interesting to start from, just as a starting point, which you kind of queued off there, is the damn jump. This is our introduction to Pierce Brosnan as Bond. How do you think this movie does as an introduction to Pierce Brosnan and, and what his Bond will be going forward?
0: It's actually kind of a hard question to answer because if you compare it against the next three films, maybe it isn't setting it up so well. Mm-hmm. But for the rest of this film, I'd say it sets it up pretty well. He's action from the start. He's, he's going in pretty much guns blazing, dropping bombs, as it were. And it's going to give you that leaning more towards the Timothy Dalton style of Bond than, than the Roger
1: Moore. He does have the quips, though. Like Dalton could never quite do the quips But you can tell with Brosnan they were amping those up a little more.
0: One bit of information I found out actually, the first actual scene of Pierce Brosnan is the shot of his eyes as he's just dropped into the the toilet. Right. Everything else until that point was
1: a stunt double. You you can actually really tell that when you watch it on a 4K Blu-ray player (laughs) with the upscaling.
0: (laughs) I fortunately only had it on DVD, but even then on my screen I could see it was a, a stunt double and there's a little bit later on in the film as well where it's glaringly
1: obviously a stunt double unfortunately yeah that stunt double actually who did that uh, that famous bungee jump his name is wayne michaels and he actually plays one of the tiger uh, helicopter pilots that xenia kills the one with the dark hair so oh, there you go Guess yeah more- when you w- see the scene and you see Brazen coming down and it, the first time we really see his face is when he's hanging upside down and he's taking out the you know the the guard there to me that is just a really fun intro to Bond. And when you look back at the introductions to Bond actors, it's up there with the best. I mean, Connery will always win sitting at the baccarat table saying Bond, James Bond. That will always be number one. Mm. But some of the other ones, you know, they weren't great. Like Roger Moore's was just in his you know apartment. Um, Timothy Dalton's was okay. But this one does feel like they went for a little more of an impact moment with their introduction.
0: Was the George Lazenby one On the beach, is my memory serving correctly, or was it earlier in the film?
1: No, you're right, yeah.
0: That never happened to the other guy. (laughs) That that moment still makes me jar a little bit, but...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Craig got a good one with the black and white flashback sequence. Of course he did, yes. The little
0: toilet scene. I remember (laughs) that now. Mm, That was intense. So then, obviously, we move on with the film. He's he's in the, the plant now. He meets up with Sean Bean and that's sort of a who is that in the shadows and steps out and they're on the same team, which is nice because usually it's bad guys straight away. But it's nice
1: to see Bond teaming up with someone that's his equal. I love seeing Bond with another double O agent. That's something that it's kind of shocking they never exploited in the franchise in the past. And to me, doing it this time, like it was so much fun. I would have loved a whole you know, separate movie where just these two are running missions together.
0: Had they not covered it any time before?
1: I mean, there'd been other 00 agents, but usually they just got killed. It was always Bond being called in when one died.
0: You are my resident Bond expert. I will
1: trust you on that. Because <laughs> there's like the clown one in Octopussy who's like killed right at the intro. Um, and then Bond is then put on the case. Like usually 00 agents just died and were a motivator for Bond to jump onto the, you know, whatever the, the villain plot was. One interesting thing about Brosnan is, you know, that intro as well, is that it really sells the physicality of Pierce Brosnan, which is something that Dalton had it, but never to this degree. This may be the most physical Bond we've seen in that, you know, you have him in this introduction with 006, you know, after 006 has been taken out, like leaping backwards onto this ramp, you know, firing a machine gun. And then a cut to him doing like a forward roll out the other side of the ramp. Throughout the movie, we're going to see him do things like this, you know, rolling down ladders on antenna arrays, um, just being thrown around. And that's something that we've never seen. And it really did, to me, signal who this Bond was going to be. He was going to be more of a physical action hero. And I wonder how much that has to do with, say, like John McClane and other heroes like that.
0: Which I think, yeah, that certainly was the era of people getting a bit dirty and fighting, and our leading heroes being sort of what's the word, approachable, I suppose, getting uh, getting dirty and getting rough. Yeah, um, it's interesting because you just lead onto that bit now. One of my weirdest parts of the film from rewatching it, and I don't remember laughing at it as a kid. I think I, I must have thought it was amazing. <laughs> is that the, I think you know where I'm going with this? Is the plane scene? Uh huh. Can you please explain to me how anyone can jump off following a plane, catch up to it and fly it away? I just don't.
1: I just don't. You see, Scott, you and I can't. It's James Bond that can. James (sighs) Bond can change the laws of physics. Clearly. (laughs) (laughs) What a spectacular intro, though, to have this, not just the bungee jump, but then the big plane, you know, and the explosion at the, uh, the facility. Like, what an amazing intro and what a... I mean, if you are a Bond actor who signed on, this is your first Bond, and you are sitting in the theater watching this, you mm-hmm. are just like, oh man, I look so badass. And it does tee up the rest of the film, I would say. I think
0: it it doesn't really stop from that point no. onwards. And like I was saying earlier, it, it takes your interest and just runs with it.
1: It does. And it also sets up, yeah, as you said, like the plotting, which a lot of the Bond um, cold you know, intros would be more of a... It's kind of a standalone little thing, you know. You'd have like Roger Moore taking down a Blofeld kind of character at the start of Free Rise Only, and then the movie starts, and that is never mentioned again. So, I like that this one is tied more into the plot,
0: yeah. So, for me, going back and watching this, I think that was the difference now from when I was a kid. I mean, definitely, I because I did enjoy it as a kid, and just to put that into perspective now, I did not enjoy it now, which is what was my fear going into it. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to think. A lot of films I watched as a child that I liked, I don't want to watch them again almost as an adult in case I don't like them. Right. And this was one of them. But damn if it holds up. And you you just think, like, what a badass if he actually gets into that plane and flies off. Now, yeah, I laughed at it. But it's a great opener.
1: It is. And then it just segs so nicely with that Tina Turner song, which I think is fantastic. I wish, actually, they bring back Bono and the Edge to write another Bond theme. Um... I mean, I'll forgive them the line, you'll never know how I watched you from the shadows as a child. That line, well, I have questions about. But outside of that, I think this song's great. I love the intro. I love the imagery of sort of this, you know, fall of the uh, USSR kind of stuff. Like, I think it's uh, really, really effective.
0: Apparently there was a a complaint from some of the communist countries that were left over that the communist symbols were taken down by scantily fine women. Maybe a valid complaint, I don't know.
1: (laughs) I don't really know. (laughs) Uh, I don't know how to reply to that. Okay. Right. Yeah. This movie does fall though at a really interesting time politically because in nineteen eighty-nine the Berlin Wall comes down in November uh, of that year. And then the Cold War ends in nineteen ninety one. And they didn't have a Bond movie prime to like land in like nineteen ninety-two. So I feel like with Goldeneye, it's kind of that catch-up. It's like, of course Bond has to comment on this because Bond had dealt with like smurfsh and so much Russian sort of based stuff in the past with the franchise and that they're a few years too late, but uh, I appreciate that they still were going
0: for it. And in terms of Bond tunes, which I'm sure we'll go back into when we do other reviews of other Bond films, this is one of the better ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tina Turner, wasn't it?
1: Yes, it was, yeah.
0: Yeah. And as you say, written by Bono and the Ed, it, it just holds up. It had good airplay, and it's a song that you remember. you, you think about Goldeneye, you'll start singing the song.
1: Mm-hmm. You will, That's yeah. That's kind of what you want, It's kind of what you want. It's a great song, but why don't we just start getting to some of the Bond tropes of this film? Like, why don't we talk about maybe the leading ladies of this film, which I think actually really do underscore a difference in the Brosnan era and what the Bond films will be going forward. Absolutely, with the Bond girls. I mean, Femme Janssen as the the
0: femme fatale for the film, she is someone that as soon as you see her in that race down the hills in Southern France, you know she's going to be a force to be reckoned with. And then you get to the scenes later on where she's crushing people with her thighs. As a as a young man going to the cinema or watching at home on VHS, that's certainly uh, yeah. She she leaves her impression in your mind for sure. She made an impact, that's for sure.
1: Um, <laughs> well, I, I think ribs, it, maybe. <laughs> I think it's fun that they took a trope of James Bond, which is the the female you know villain or uh, Bond girl type character. And who, they always had goofy names, you know, Holly Goodhead or Merry Goodnight, Plenty O'Toole. And I like that they weaponized it. Like Xenia on top, you know, when it's introduced, it's like, oh, of course, Zenya on a top. But it's instantly like a threat. It's like, this is a dangerous, dangerous character. And I like that Bond's biggest weakness, that is her biggest strength, is to kill you in, you know, <laughs> in, that, in that sort of uh, form.
0: It's almost as if she's written as the, the weapon to
1: destroy Bond. It really does feel like that. Yeah. And I I think Famke Jansen is fantastic. I think brings, I mean, she is one of the great villain henchmen um, in the Bond franchise. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's a tall order. You know, when you look at the ones that had come before of Jaws and Odd Job, Mayday, I think she had a pretty, you know, tall order. And I think Famke Jansen delivers. I love that scene you mentioned with her driving the car. Although I still have no idea where she came from (laughs) in that sequence. (laughs)
0: It, it, it's a lovely little sequence but um, I mean they, I read that they trashed the both the cars one day when they were shooting it so they had to shut down production for a day to get them back in order again I can um, believe that <laughs> yeah but um, I mean you just look at her later in the film I mean she starts off by like shrieking crushing people with her thighs but then she also has moments where she's making impact on the film being completely silent you take it at the train scene later on when the, the train's on fire she's almost like smiling at the idea
1: Oh, I love that scene when she has the moment where she says, he's trying to derail us. And she's like really getting off on saying that. Like, yeah. it's a campy performance, but it's also a very menacing performance. And I think that's what makes it so perfect.
0: Which I think walks the line for that film as well. It's 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 got some camp, absolutely. But it also has some, some gravity to it.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good call because Brosnan has a lot of the quips that, I mean, on this rewatch, I was really analyzing his uh, delivery of those quips. I don't think that Brosnan is a particularly good comedian. <laughs> he's better than, um, say, Craig or Dalton at that, but he feels a little more like your dad trying to crack a joke than I remembered.
0: <laughs> Almost as if he's pausing, waiting for the laugh. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Like, is this thing on? <laughs> <laughs> Tough crowd, eh? <laughs> but, yeah... Um, Getting back to, like, the, the female leads, though, I thought what was really interesting, and this is something that I can't say I'd noticed too much before, was the Isabella Skorupko character, Natalia. Um, this character has a backstory. This character has a life that exists outside of the movie. That's not the case with, like, any of the other Bond girls. They they don't come into existence until they meet Bond. Whereas this, mm-hmm. this woman, you know, she's a programmer, um, a level two, I believe, wasn't she? <laughs> uh, well, I mean... No one wants to be a level one programmer. Apparently not, yeah. Um, But, you know, working on this uh, GoldenEye project when, you know, and she's obviously brought into this whole conspiracy where she's the only survivor of the attack. And so we follow her from this attack, this traumatic event, you know, as she's doing, you know, her own investigation, tracking, you know, Boris, the other hacker played by Alan Cumming. And this character has so much agency and that when she meets Bond, She's on her own course. Like, this is not a case of this, vill- or this character is introduced just walking up as the contact. Like, Natalia has her own story.
0: And I think if you hold her up against other Bond girls in the past and in the future, mm-hmm. she actually has some presence in the film and actually dictates what happens a little bit, which you really can't say for some of the other ones.
1: Yeah, like, I remember when they were making this movie, they talked a lot about how this was going to be the modern, you know, female Bond lead. Mm. Um, and what does that mean now? 25 years past, <laughs> you know, like modern in 1995. Okay, I guess. But you can see that to them what that meant was giving these characters their own inner lives and making them more a part of the action versus getting, you know, dragged behind Bond or being held captive a lot. Um, and, and and I think it really succeeds with that. You see a little more of the weirdness, I think, when it comes to M where you have the Tanner character referring to her as like the evil queen of numbers. And a lot of like, Oh, bond, you have a female boss, huh? But then shout out to Judy Dench
0: for stepping into what is a big role in the franchise. Not only changing the sex of the character, obviously it's a new, and they never addressed why the change really happens, but um, she just knocks it out of the park from there on in. And she's a, she stays with it into the Craig era as well.
1: Yeah, Judy Dench is one of the great additions to this franchise. And I love that, you know, out of, the ba- out of the cage here, she's saying that, like, you know, you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. Like, it's very much taking aim at James Bond. And I do love that this movie really does hold Bond over the fire in a way the franchise occasionally does in the years going forward, where it's like, why does James Bond need to exist in this era? And I like that her character is the one basically interrogating that. Mm. And, you know, ultimately, she's the one who kind of gives him this real like slap down in the briefing room, but ends it with Bond come back alive. And I love that. So then as soon as that happens, you start rooting for her. She's framed as, as you say, the,
0: the, 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 the the numbers woman. Yeah. Wicked witch of the West almost, but she wants Bond to come back. She cares about Bond in the mission. She's just a different person. And she does view the bond as that sort of ancient dinosaur. But that's also how people were starting to see the franchise in the way. And as you, as you sort of were mentioning earlier, this is their take on it. And they've, they've used it to sort of frame the perspective of Bond going forward, that they know that he has had this past, but he can do this in the future.
1: Definitely. And, you know, I love that she also refers to him as a relic of the Cold War. And this movie is just riddled with imagery of relics of the Cold War with the opening song, as well as, you know, where he unmasks um, Janice, you know, in this like statue park of these old Lenin statues and all that. Uh To me, that's just fantastic stuff is to have a thematic through line to the movie and not many uh, Bond movies really do that, but it's a early stab at that. And I think it might've been the first really too.
0: And that's where we're, we're different, me and you as I alluded to earlier, I tend to look at films as more of a singular piece of work. Whereas I know you'll dive more into how, how thematically put together. Obviously you'll take the background into account and you tend to know
1: a lot more about the franchise going into a film. Right. Even on that level, this still works. Well, yeah, because it's not, like, navel-gazy. It's not basically saying we're a, you know, deconstructionist Bond. Like, we are going to deconstruct this franchise. I I like that it has all that stuff there, but the ultimate Bond elements are totally intact, and you can just show up and have an amazing time. Like, that's that's the key to, I think, a great James Bond movie.
0: And also, I think, a great franchise movie. Yeah. You You should just be able to walk into this film even really without knowing who 007 is, although I imagine most would, and have a great time. And I think this, it, I, I know it delivers because I felt that.
1: Yeah, it really does. And I love that the spy story of it, at the heart of it, really does feel interesting and involving. You know, a lot of the tracking through this movie, you know, Bond going to meet contacts and piecing together what the actual Janus mystery is and what Oromov, this corrupt um, colonel, is doing. To me, like, that is really absorbing stuff because the way they ground it with so much action, you know, an audience is going to be there for the action with a James Bond movie, but the story feels like it's actually unfolding in a way that's, you know, it's not rushed, but you are totally absorbed in what is going on.
0: And I think it just shows it's just well put together. The action sequence flow and you can follow it.
1: Yeah, I know. Isn't that so rare nowadays? Uh,
0: Don't. Don't get me started. There's so many films I could... Just think of a Transformers film. Do you even
1: know who's on the screen half the time? No. It looks like someone just has like a bag of car parts they're shaking in the camera. It's just a color vomit on my screen sometimes. It's just... And we will talk about a James Bond movie in the future where, you know, that action isn't so linear as it is here. So, you know, something to look forward to, folks. There we go. And with that, that once I'd like to touch on the villains
0: because I think they're also a central part of Bond. There's ones that are a lot more memorable than others. Oh, yeah. sure. Um, Now, before I touch on Sean Bean and some of the other main villains, I do want to touch on Robbie Coltrane. He's not technically a villain, although he is kind
1: of a villain. Do you have any opinions on his accent? Um, I'm an idiot when it comes to accents. Um, So I don't... (laughs) <laughs> I thought you were Swedish most of our friendship. I mean, who knew? Dirty, <laughs> dirty. Yeah, so I mean, uh, no, I'm an idiot when it comes to those things, so I'm the worst. The only thing I can pick out is if you show me like, you know, um, Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, like that one, I'll be like, okay, that's really bad. But outside of that, I'm really not good. So what is your take on Robbie Coltrane, who I love this character, but what, is, what did you think of the accent?
0: Well, okay, for those listening, I'm from London. I have a, a somewhat Londoner accent. I'm sure those who are from England can tell where I'm from. Robbie Coltrane is a Scotsman playing a Russian. If you listen to any of his sentences, they start off in Russian and they end up full on Scottish. It is it's, it's almost miraculous how quickly he turns it round. I can't think of a single full line I could give you an example of. But just listen to his his accent just change and he'll by the end he's Akaya the Newin. <laughs> you know he is he is going full-on scott uh, not that i minded but i mean it, it did take me out of it a little bit there it did get a
1: laugh out of me i mean i wonder if that is part of the charm of that character in some ways like it's almost like a weakness that becomes a strength because zukovsky is such a memorable bond ally uh, bond has some really good ones over the years like Karen bay for example or tiger uh, tanaka Zukovsky is one that I really love. He has such like that twinkle of mischief in his eye and he's kind of (laughs) weird. And I love that they, you know, he comes back. I love that he's a recurring character. This character just works for me and his scene facing off against Bond. He has that menace to him where he's like unloading a gun around, you know, where Bond's sitting. Uh, He's really cool. There's one scene that drives me crazy about him and has nothing to do with him. It's when uh, Bond is heading over to meet him with Jack Wade, the new CIA guy Felix, of course, was no longer in the picture after License to Kill, so we got Jack Wade. Um, But they're driving over, and there's this part where it's just a shot of the car, and Jack Wade says something like, so you shot him in the knee and stole his girl. How are you going to get him on your side? And Vaughn says, I'm going to appeal to his wallet. And he goes, that'll work. And it's like, this is so obviously bad ADR, and those who don't know, that's additional dialogue replacement where they've recorded it after the fact. And I feel like they've only put it there to tell the audience who this character is. And it drives me crazy every time I see the movie.
0: What's entirely bizarre, and I think it's uh, it shows that how we both look at films in different ways. I didn't notice
1: that. Oh, really? That is one that has uh, just stuck out to me for years of like, I know that the actors had nothing to do with this. This was all after the fact. And I guess they just felt it was unclear who Zakovsky was. But I don't know. But uh, you <laughs> said you had a mini Driver story. Mini Driver, of course, has a cameo here as a quote-unquote singer, um, <laughs> in the bar that Zukowski's running.
0: Yeah, she's, uh, she's wailing out Stand By Your Man uh, in the background for most of the scene. Now, they took, they took several passes of that scene, apparently, where they had different varying levels of bad singing. Right. I'm not sure where this one is on the spectrum. I'll let you guys judge at home how bad it is. <laughs> but I, I also hear that reportedly she was paid $5,000 for the part.
1: Yeah, I mean, she was pretty much an unknown at this time, so that doesn't super surprise me. I think she was
0: um, connected to either the director or the producer in some sort of way, and that's how she ended up with the
1: role. But, you know, she stands out in the scene, and it does, it's a nice little comedy beat, I'd say. It really is. I think it's fun, and again, fills out the world of Zukowski. I'm just curious, though, before we just jump into the rest of the villains, what were your thoughts on Jack Wade as a Felix Leiter replacement? As
0: someone who struggle with felix leiter as i was going through my sort of rewatch, as it were of the bond films and why it kept changing from film to film by the point they changed his name and basically made him a different cia exposition robot i wasn't that bothered anymore right um it, it was quite cute when he took the sledgehammer to the car you just think ah oh, that's nice um and he's a little quip at the end with the bmw and such but I, I was just like, he's just there to give me exposition and move the plot on a little bit. So I didn't really put too much thought into him. He's quirky. I'll take it.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, no, it's Still not a good name as Felix Leiter, though. It's just a mm-hmm. cracking name right there. It really is. Jack Wade is a very American name, though. So I appreciate that they went full on. So why don't we get into the villains, the other villains? Because I think this movie really does have a murderer's row of villains. Like a lot of Bond movies, you kind of got like maybe one cool one and then some disposable this one oh. has a lot. This is like four great villains.
0: I was just lying in the in my head. I suppose you're right. One, two. So we've got obviously Sean Bean as 006.
1: We've got Alan Cummings. We've got... Who are the other ones? You said you're four. Yeah, we've also got Famke Jansen, and of course, as on the top, who we talked about. And then we've got um, Godfrey John as Colonel Oromoff, who I think is really underrated. Like he's surrounded by very flashy characters, but Oromov has this sweaty desperation throughout that I find really funny.
0: And you totally buy it as well. When he
1: turns up to the interrogation
0: scene and just starts shooting his own people, you're like, yeah, I can see that happening.
1: And I love the whole scene in the tank chase where, again, practical tank. Oh, it looks so amazing. Um, You know, no CG. But um, I love how Orimov is in, like, the back of that car, just, like, drinking from a flask the whole time. Wedged in between two soldiers either side, flanking him. He's just like, he knows he's basically screwed at this point. It's like, "Oh. oh. Like... When you look at Xenia and 006, they are like slick villains. Like, they have their game plan. I like that Oromov is kind of the bumbling guy that's just kind of wandered into their midst, but it's so not on their level.
0: Yeah, it's almost as if he's fallen into the trappings of being a villain, basically. He's, <laughs> he's just like, he's feeling his way through being a bad guy.
1: And he doesn't really want to do it that much. <laughs> no, I,
0: I, could, I could see him being the kind of guy that has a military career and just retires and he's happy with.
1: I feel like Oromov goes home most nights to his wife. He's just like, honey, you're not going to believe the day I had today. What a day, right? <laughs> Pours himself like a, a, I don't know, vodka, I would guess.
0: And just like drinks it quietly in the corner while the kids run around and he gets more depressed.
1: <laughs> and has to like settle his nerves.
0: <laughs> you see him like the, the, the glass twitching
1: as the kids start screaming. And he's like staring into the distance and he comes up with his golden eye plan. And every morning when he wakes up. He first off just glares at the alarm clock, but then gets up, kind of sits on the edge of the bed with his, you know, feet on the floor and just puts his head in his hands. <laughs> he's like in a vest top
0: and, and like boxer shorts and just looks so sad. Now is, is Orimov, is he a snoozer or does he get up on the first alarm? I feel like he might snooze a bit. Yeah, he's definitely hitting the snooze button a couple times. Yeah, he he does not want to start his day. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, And I I actually, on the Alan Cummings subject, I I texted you when I was watching it the first time through again, and how I just felt like he didn't have a a fair shot in the film. I still still think that's true. He had a good turn, but as you said back to me,
1: he was still quite new. Yeah, I mean, he was known for theater, but he wasn't really a big screen presence yet, Um, I think, it was this and then, I mean, obviously Nightcrawler in X2, X Men United, that really mm-hmm. made him much more recognizable. But, you know, he was a respected uh, theater actor at the time, but he wasn't going to get the big, flashy main villain. I-, I love that this character, you know, has his like slugheads kind of line. Um, he has a lot of quirkiness. I couldn't help but wonder on this rewatch, though. This movie's made in 1994, they're shooting it. Mm-hmm. Um, Jurassic Park comes out in 1993. And I was wondering how much of this hacker was inspired by Dennis Nedry, with the whole like pop-up with his face on it on the screen, as well as like the, you know, you need to know the password kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I never connected those two dots, but that is eerily similar, you're right. That, that whole, yeah, with the whole sort of screen images and uh-uh-uh.
1: Yeah, I'd never yeah, thought that- about it until this rewatch. It was this rewatch where I suddenly was like, wait a second.
0: Can you imagine if that was the last piece of the script? And then they saw Jurassic Park and they're like, that's it. Uh, yeah. Ah, uh, we've uh, uh. got to put that in. Passwords. That's what people want. Passwords.
1: I mean, it's too bad they deleted the scene where Bond has the romantic liaison with a raptor.
0: There's a joke in there about spitting, but I'll leave it out.
1: <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I think that was the Dilophosaurus. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, boy um
0: but yeah i i I loved him in the film and again he was much like some of um the the bond girls as well he had some agency in the film he was good at what he did and the only way he was taken down in the end was by something that was nothing to do with him
1: yeah and i love that every villain in this plot has their own agenda and they all just happen to coincide with this one mission. Like you could see these four splitting off and going in completely different directions had this plan succeeded, you know, moving on to different schemes in the future.
0: Hmm. And that, I think that lends some credibility to the story because I think that's what would really happen.
1: It does. And, you know, there's been so many Bond heavy hitter main villains, you know, with Blofeld and Gold, uh, Goldfinger. What did you think of Trevelyan?
0: He was a bit mustache twirling for me. Right, Not that that's necessarily a bad thing for a Bond film, but I never really felt that he was Bond's equal, even though he was positioned as such at the beginning of the film. But then he's immediately captured. Well, not really, but you're led to believe that he is. And he's basically outdone by Bond at every chance. Now, that generally happens in most Bond films, but I never really got the idea or the impression that he
1: was actually someone to fear he has a smugness to him that bond doesn't quite bond has a little more charisma. Um, I like that. These two do feel though, like the mirror images of each other, uh, you know, they both got the tragic orphan backstory. Um, this movie taught me what a Leanne's Cossack is. <laughs> um, but I, I can go along with this character because I think what the moment for me that really sells that he is bonds equal is actually when the two of them have their fist fight in the antenna array Control uh-huh. room, where suddenly it's like I've never seen this before. Really, we've never seen Bond go fist to fist against a villain like this. Usually, Bond kind of is winking and sending the villain off to their death with kind of a quip. Whereas, like you can tell, this takes exertion and skill for him to take down this villain.
0: One bit of information I found out from my uh, my rewatch with the commentary on is that they tried to they use the train scene. From, I believe, is it from Russia with Love?
1: Okay, yeah.
0: Uh, as inspiration for the antenna fight. It's a very claustrophobic, hand-to-hand combat style. Right. And it, it, I can see it. It, it. it was one of the better Bond
1: fight scenes in the Sean Connery one, I should say. I love the moment where he like hurls Trevelyan down like the staircase and fires the gun at him immediately. That is yeah. so badass. Yeah, like, that's so Bond. Interesting tidbit. For some reason, all of the headbutts in that
0: fight scene were cut out of the British version. So what do you guys have against headbutts? We don't do that here. We're, we're, we're too respectable, Cam. Oh, is that it? It's more like We the, don't want uh, to damage the face.
1: We'll beat you up everywhere else. We don't damage the face. Sure, it's more of the, uh, the North American, rough around the edges. We're, we just headbutt each other constantly. That's how we say hello. So that's the, 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 the big lie about Canada, right? You're all really nice to everyone else, but to each other, you just beat living daylights out of each other. Yeah. yeah. But I, I love that this movie is taking a spy movie and it's trying to do things a little more seriously than the Roger Moore films, for example. Uh-huh. But, it, but it has all the tropes. You know, we mentioned this antenna, right? This big antenna that comes out of a lake in, uh, in Cuba. You know, like that is so like Blofeld volcano stuff. This movie yep. has your Xenia on top, which falls right into that kind of villain uh, trope. You have the, you know, again, the, the Bond female characters with the goofy names. It has all the stuff you'd want but just repositioned to be a little bit different, to feel different. And I really do think that that is one of the great strengths of this movie. You know, when we get to that big antenna array, I'm not sitting there just kind of like laughing at it the way I did with, say, you know, Blofeld and You Only Live Twice in his volcano, Mm. but it just feels so organic and yet just a slight repositioning of the norm. I think there's just a little bit of a
0: leaning into believability there. I mean, that, that antenna does exist.
1: Well, we would see like going forward that the Broccoli's would become more and more fixated on bringing more realism back to the franchise, which obviously the Craig era does quite a bit more. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this just feels like it's another step closer to, I guess you could say realism from the um, um, Timothy Dalton films.
0: Yeah, you can definitely see the evolution there from Roger Moore to Dalton to here and then definitely to Craig
1: by the end. Mm hmm. Um, but just
0: to sort of sum up the villains then, did they all work for you then?
1: Across the board, I wish all Bond movies had, you know, four villains like this or put like massive effort into every villain they wrote.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. As, as I said earlier, I don't think 006 necessarily worked for me. He just felt like the lesser version of Bond as opposed to a mirror how you saw it. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. The rest of them all worked for me. Obviously, Bond is going to overcome
1: the obstacle. That's how these films work. Of course. but
0: Yeah, but they, they all seemed like actual people.
1: They did. Like, they felt like they were fleshed out in a way that we hadn't really seen. I mean, Sanchez in License to Kill was pretty fleshed out as a villain, but um, it feels like they just applied that across the board here. Um, kind of jumping off of that, one uh, thing I wanted to talk to you about was when they were making this movie, we've talked about how it strives for a little more maybe realism in some ways. Another thing that I think they were trying to do in 1995 was to have a more sensitive bond. Like, I think when you go through the bonds, they all kind of had different things. You know, Roger Moore is kind of the goofy comedic bond. Daniel mm-hmm. Craig's the more serious, um, brutal bond. I think Pierce Brosnan was very much positioned as the more sensitive bond for the nineties. And you had that scene on the beach with him in Italia where you know, he's uh, talking about it's what keeps me alive, and she's saying it's what keeps you alone. These are not things we ever would have seen in another Bond movie.
0: I mean, yeah, unfortunately, if you put Sean Connery in that position, it would probably end up in some sort of, uh, uh, yeah, grabbing of the uh, of the Bond girl. Yeah. I mean, I I, I find some of these scenes a bit icky looking back on the older films, which I'm sure we'll dive into when we get to those films. Yeah. But this is done really sensitively. They they have a a scene afterwards where they're in the hotel room together. And i assume it's a hotel. They're not having sex or anything like that. They're just, they're, it's hinted at maybe, but you never see anything explicitly.
1: Yeah. And when you contrast that, you know, you have, as you know, as you say, like, it's much more of like, there's a, more of, I guess, a sense of romance. I wonder how much this has to do with Barbara Broccoli coming in as a producer and repositioning a little bit of how Bond is uh, portrayed on screen and that Pierce Brosnan does have that more sensitive edge with his female um, leads and I, I can't help but wonder if, you know, we're supposed to read something into that when we're looking at, obviously, the scene you mentioned, you know, where the two of them are just together. Um, contrast that with when we see 006 capturing Natalia, and he's very rapey. And that's the sort of thing where yeah. you're like, it's like you watch it now and you're like, oh, like, this is really, it's really unsettling and kind of jarring. And I don't know if it was as much in 1995, but now we have a much more of a visceral reaction And um, that uh, is definitely a little more of the Bond you're referring to when you're saying maybe sort of the Connery era where they were a little more um, brutal.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, it may, I, I would actually say that that scene now with 006 works more now to almost show you the contrast between 006 and 007.
1: It does, and I think it also really underscores why we don't like this character like why he is basically a hero gone bad a double o agent gone bad right and we haven't really spoken on the topic but obviously this is pierce's first film as bond how do you think he did i think he pulled it off really well i mean when you go through the history of the franchise it's tough to find a bond actor who wasn't really good out of the gate Mm -hmm. um but i think brosnan follows in that you know that line like he really does make the character his own off his first movie and i think you'll see going forward when we do these that brosnan gets more maybe confident in his performance but he's figured out what he wants his bond to be very early on
0: i think this how this film and sort of the tone it sets for bond helps that
1: yeah i think so too like i I wish we'd gotten four um brosnan bond movies that had a little more of this tone
0: yeah, it's. I it would. I would almost be interested to see what the living daylights looked
1: like with Pierce Brosnan in the role. Yeah, that's who they wanted. Pierce Brosnan yeah. was supposed to do it. So, and it's funny because they, um, Martin Campbell says there was discussions about uh, Mel Gibson and Ray Fiennes for GoldenEye, and uh, I could see Ray Fiennes. Mel Gibson would have been a train wreck in, in the role. Yeah, especially now. Yeah, but
0: uh, I mean, obviously, Ray Fiennes comes back later on as N.
1: Mm-hmm. But I
0: could definitely see him taking up that kind of suave sophisticated role and i think he would end end up lending himself more towards that new school version of bond as well
1: yeah when you look at like a younger ray fines like the ray fines of say schindler's list you could totally see him as a bond he has a more of that um assassins sort of look in his eye that uh they really went for with daniel craig later i mean i think he really
0: channeled that energy into his performance as
1: voldemort personally yeah (laughs) another good franchise yeah um i have a question for you what is your take on the computer hacking in this movie
0: it's an interesting question i it's it's cringe inducing in a way not that i know anything about computer hacking so i actually don't know how it works but it is the stereotypical
1: 90s hacking click of the click and you've infiltrated the cia and you everyone has like personalized little like emoticons on screen and everything but then it looks like they're running on like ms dos that's yeah. literally just a text-based
0: format. How on earth is this stuff working? I don't know. But then I was, I, I, I think my first
1: operating system was Windows 95, to be fair. You could do a whole other podcast on like 1990s computer hacking uh, because there's some amazing cases in movies like Hackers and uh, The Net. There's a lot of them and they're all very goofy. I, I,
0: I like that they kind of lent into that camp side of hacking because no one actually really wants to see someone hacking. right. I imagine that's probably really boring on the screen. Whereas you just, it's established very early on that they're both very good at what they do with computers and you just go, okay, they're good, hacked, great. And you just believe that they can do it.
1: I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. Fortunately, I'm not a uh, techie person. So uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a simpleton when it comes to these things but it always does seem kind of goofy. Um, I guess maybe just lastly, Bond movies are about action. What is your favorite action sequence in the movie? It's gotta be the tank sequence for me. Yeah. Uh,
0: it, it's just, there's there's lots of good ones to choose from, but man, seeing that tank rolling around destroying cars and running over stuff and then like shooting at a train, all kinds of great stuff. Running through the, uh, the, the sponsor of the film,
1: Perrier. Excuse me, Scott, I just need to take a drink of refreshing Perrier water. <laughs> Do you feel like your, th- your thirst has been quenched now? I do more so than any other time in my life. This podcast was not sponsored by Perrier or Netflix. <laughs> but we're open to offers. <laughs> please, please call <laughs> us. We yeah. desperately need it. <laughs> no, I'm with you. The tank chase is the big highlight. And you even have little moments like Bond adjusting his tie throughout. But again, practical. Seeing this actual tank ramming through things just looks so incredible. And, uh, you know, the Brazen movie would move away from realistic stuff in a few movies. And uh, this is a great example though, of just what a Bond movie can do when they're firing on all cylinders and basically all the pieces come together. Another thing that is a benefit to this scene, Eric Sarah's score for it is decent. Whereas a lot of the time his score I find very um, dated. I mean, I have that score kind of burnt into my memory just from the video game, I would
0: say. Yeah. But yeah, just on that that tank scene, It just oozes cool. He's like standing outside the tank, just driving it after people. You're just like, good Lord, this guy is, he's got it.
1: He has it. What is more destroyed at the end of this film? Um, (laughs) Russian police cars or 006? (laughs) Uh, As if it wasn't enough, he was thrown (laughs) off of the cradle, and then he gets
0: crushed to death, and then the whole thing blows up too. I wonder how far he made it. Like just like poor Sean Bean dying in every film. I think this is more or less where that thing started. But like insult to injury, he falls down. He's like no, and then the whole
1: thing blows up too. Poor guy. He dies amazingly. Like there is no bigger death in maybe the Bond franchise than what happens to this guy. One thing on the on the tank chase scene, There's a bit where they he runs over a police
0: car and the whole left hand side of the car is destroyed. And then you see the tank come off of it. And then both of the cops either side just get out of it like they're fine. Yeah. And that even even watching it back then I went, that's kind of <laughs> hilarious. And then it then he goes and plows into the Perrier
1: cans. <laughs> Again, let me just take a second to have a sip of refreshing Perrier water. Ah, <laughs> uh, nothing quite like it. Mm-hmm. So should we talk about maybe this movie's placement in the knock list? Does it belong? I think we should. Now, we did go through this in the briefing episode last week,
0: but Cam, do you want to give us a quick explanation of what The Knock List is?
1: Yes, The knocklist List is the need-to-know official classics of the spy genre as selected by us here of the Spy Hearts podcast. Now, this mo- list is not subjective. This is objective. Once this list is carved into stone, it cannot be argued against. These are the greatest spy films of all time.
0: Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up for the listeners at home. But to answer your initial question, does it make the list? I Sometimes I think I'm going to debate it with you. And I think sometimes we're going to be more in sync. And on this one, for me, it's a yes.
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to struggle with some of the other Bond movies that I really love. Um, because I'm going to have to really ask myself if they belong on the canon of all-time spy movies versus just being fun Bond movies that I enjoy. Mm. But this is a case where I think all of the strengths working for the film make it a really great entry into the spy genre. And a lot of the Bond movies, they almost aren't spy movies. They kind of fall into almost like superhero movies in some ways. This one does feel like a spy movie. You have so much Cold War elements. Um, There's a lot of like, you know, espionage and mysteries that need to be solved through investigation. To me, this does feel like a really great spy movie. And I don't know how many Bond movies will really fit that bill, but this one does.
0: I I think you summed up my main point about it quite well there is if you took off the Bond name from the film and it was just a film about a spy, would it be a good spy film? Yes.
1: Yeah. You mean people might be a little bit confused about the extended BMW commercial, but yes, it is a great spy movie. (laughs) (laughs) But not the Perrier Cans. No, no. Ooh, all spies and... succeed when they drink Perrier water, as
0: we do here. On no, no, we don't. No, we don't. No, we don't. <laughs> I bathe in it. <laughs> don't tell them that. They'll send us more. It keeps me young. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why they call it the uh, the source <laughs> of eternal youth. <use>. That's right.
1: <laughs> mm.
0: Okay, Cam. So all plugs aside, where do we stand on this film?
1: We are stamping official on this one.
0: It's in the knock list. Great. Well, on that revelation, the dossier on GoldenEye is complete and marked as classified. Cam, what are we tackling
1: next week? We are going to take on 1959's Alfred Hitchcock film, some would say classic, North by Northwest starring Cary Grant. I think this is a really good jumping off point from GoldenEye because in many ways, Cary Grant in North by Northwest inspired the movie version of Bond. Good. So
0: listeners at home,
1: your mission, should you choose to accept it,
0: is to watch North by Northwest and get back to us on social media with your thoughts on the film. Speaking of social media, you can follow us, discreetly of course,
1: at SpyHards on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And you can, of course, track the knock list at our account on Letterboxd. That's letterboxd.com slash spyhards. We will post the list there. We'll also have a list of just everything we've done. And uh, it'll give you a glimpse. You know, right now, obviously, we have one movie on the knock list. Probably not that important. But further down the road, you may want to, you know, flashback to what that list is, you know, for recommendations for yourself or for others.
0: And also just connect with us on there as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. So we look forward to hearing from you on the social media. But until
0: then, good luck among the shadows.